The defining feature of the skyline in Auckland, New Zealand, is the sky tower. I want to see it someday. I haven't. It extends more than twice as high as any other building in the city. From one level, which is just over halfway up, you can base jump by wire and fall over 600 feet. Like Auckland, sort of, Roanoke has sought ways to distinguish itself. We don't stretch quite so high, but we do have a downtown Wi-Fi network. We are continuing our work on the greenways, and of course there is the Taubman Museum of Art. One question for us today is, what distinguishes us as Christians? Is there anything that makes us different from people who do not follow Christ? Or are we just trying to be a more pleasant version of humanity? You've seen one thing in our service that distinguishes us already. Who besides Christians baptizes these days except maybe playful parents, maybe swim coaches? At last week's worship service, we participated in another action that distinguishes us, the Lord's Supper. At the Lord's table, there are no distinctions among socioeconomic levels, no distinctions among ethnicities, no distinctions among sins committed in the past. Jesus welcomes all. And despite all of our non-discrimination laws, that distinguishes followers of Jesus. Baptism and the Lord's Supper are both symbols of our reconciliation with God. Sometimes a part of our church Christmas parties is a piñata. A rope, we're in the gym, a rope is tossed through the basketball goal John Urquhart is the brave soul who stands over to the side and holds one end of the rope while the piñata hangs down from the goal itself. And the children are all on a rug far enough away. And one by one, they come up from the youngest to the oldest, and they can take two swings at the piñata. And they hit it, and you hear the crack, and you watch it spin around several times. Well, the last time they did this, I wondered, what would happen if they all got together beforehand and discussed, we're going to hit that corner of the piñata. And if they all aimed for that particular corner, how much faster they'd get to the candy and toy extravaganza. You can see where my mind lies. I wanted the toys too, but I stayed back. Jesus wanted his followers to be reconciled and working toward a common goal. And so in this scripture passage, he presents four scenarios for us to consider. The first, about the law not to murder, encourages reconciliation between those for whom anger has become a barrier. For example, your brother won't help care for your aging parents. 
or your coworker slides by without putting in her fair share of the work. Resentment builds, anger develops, and resulting actions hurt. Jesus invites us to see that in God's realm, whether we have hurt others or whether we have been hurt, we distinguish ourselves by being the initiators. We are the ones who take the first step toward reconciliation. Charles Kauser notes that in Jesus' comments on adultery and divorce, what is called for is a relationship of wholeness between males and females. The prohibition against adultery grows out of the property laws in ancient Israel. The wife belonged to her husband. She was his property. And the extramarital relationship, therefore, violated the rights of the husband. Jesus pushes us beyond a commandment against adultery to the man who treats a woman as a sexual object. Women are persons, and a proper relationship between women and men has to be based not on the grounds of exploitation, but on the grounds of mutual respect. And then there's the jarring statement about tearing out an offending eye, or cutting off a misbehaving hand. These are hyperbole. These are exaggerations to help us see the necessity of reconciliation even within our own bodies, our own selves. Intense marriage relationships, reconciliation is the goal. And yet, it's not always attainable. It's not even always appropriate. Kauser says that the effect of the prohibition on divorce is the affirmation of the sanctity of marriage and the encouragement of a reconciled relationship of husband and wife whose union is characteristic of the new rule of God announced in Jesus' ministry. So are you getting this picture? This is everything he's talking about is the new rule of God. It's It's what Jesus is calling us to. It's the kingdom of God. And then the last one, the prohibition of oaths, seems quite odd to us today. It presents what seems like an unrealistic demand. Kauser says the taking of an oath to guarantee one's word implies that otherwise one's word cannot be trusted. What the text calls for is simple, unabashed honesty in the full range of human relationships. A dentist was overheard saying to a patient as she bent over him with a hypodermic needle, you might feel a little sting, but then she must have realized her dishonesty and added, on the other hand, it might feel as if you've been kicked in the mouth by a mule. Honesty opens the door to reconciliation. One's yes is to mean yes. One's no is to mean no. In each of these scenarios, Jesus calls for an entirely new way of viewing our relationships with each other. 
Behind the prohibitions lies that vision of a restored humanity, a whole humanity, no longer fragmented. In a book called Common Prayer, we're told that alongside the ugly stories in the blood-stained pages of church history in which Christians justified slavery and genocide with deadly theology, there are the incredible stories of communities of faith who lived with great courage in times of oppression and conflict. The authors tell of a community in South Africa of black and white South Africans brought together or, or having bought together land in the age of apartheid. So they bought this land. They began living on it. They were putting their lives at risk. They were threatened with jail time. Their kingdom-minded friendships were an offense to their society of colonialism and segregation. But for them, it was necessary to sow the seeds of reconciliation, to live reconciliation in their own personal lives, because only then will it make a difference to others later on. And the authors say, reconciliation takes different shapes in different contexts and eras. There have been communities in the United States where blacks and whites lived on a commune together. That was something that was appropriate during the 50s and 60s and 70s. But what about your own context? What shape does reconciliation take in your context? Reconciling with a family member or a former friend? Reconciling with yourself that the past cannot be changed and you're ready to face the future with new determination? Reconciling yourself with God who created and offers the waters of baptism as a sign of that renewal? We think about what distinguishes us as Christians. Think, too, about what will distinguish your future from your past. When we hear the beautiful story of reconciliation in South Africa, what beautiful story would you like to create? In God's realm, we are told that anything is possible. Shall we believe it? Let's pray. Lord our God, we seek to believe in you. When there is pain around us, when there is grief, when there is uncertainty, we need the stability of you, our God, the rock of our salvation. Thank you for being with us at all times. And thank you also for nudging us toward reconciliation or perhaps even pushing us. 
For those areas in our lives where relationships are broken, O God, we seek your help and your presence. We ask for courage to be the initiator, as our Lord Jesus was, in moving back together. Help us to reconcile with the relationships around us. Help us to reconcile within ourselves that we are created and loved by you. And help us to reconcile with our enemies. Distinguish us, O God, as servants of your Son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.